Our sermon today is entitled, Comfort, Comfort, My People. So join me as we pray. Dear Jesus, thank you, Lord, for this beautiful day. Thank you for the blessing of rain. Thank you for the life that comes forth from the ground um, as you continue to pour out your love upon this earth, on both the righteous and the unrighteous. And Jesus, we ask right now that through the power of your Holy Spirit, that our community here would be brought together, that hearts would be mended, that um, our spirit would receive some comfort and some peace in this place today, and that mostly we would encounter you, Jesus. We pray that all of this would occur through the blessing of this community. Um, thank you for this time today. Um, and we pray that we would be encouraged by what we read in your word. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. All right, here's how I've been, like, consuming the world lately, right? I don't know if anyone else feels this way or if you are running with, like, a, a fairly low to medium to high level of anxiety. The more, And some of us just can't wait for the next three weeks to be over. It's, we're just done with the conversation. And it seems like every day you think, well, that was really horrible and atrocious. It can't get worse. Then it gets worse. Um, and so whether or not we are affiliated with a political party, not affiliated with a political party, whether or not we um, have really clearly studied issues of racial reconciliation or um, police reform or interfaith reconciliation, or issues of peace and war. We just bombed Yemen this week. You know, things that just happen as we open up the news and take a look. And it can feel, I don't know if you found yourself in this trap. I th I'm hoping I'm not the only one in this room. Where particularly because of our smart devices, it's like every few minutes, Lester's nodding, thank you, preach, brother. <laughs> we can pull down and refresh the page and go, what? What? And then you have to show it to somebody. So there's a, a couple people in my life that I'm constantly forwarding things to. Did you see this? Did you see this? Because I know at this point I just can't put it on any social media because I feel like I don't want to put this out in the world anymore. But now I need to talk about it with somebody and I'm all worked up about it. And so then I have to freak out again and, and talk about, well, how come, why all of a sudden did we notice this was a crazy way to converse? right? When maybe this has been crazy for a long time, and how are we having these conversations, and Christians being persecuted, and Boko Haram. Anybody feel like this? So it ends up where I just feel like this, and I don't want to get out of bed, and I just want to pull the covers over my head, and then I try to take a deep breath, and then I go back to anxiously consuming the news and the updates. And in the midst of all that, it can feel very much spiritually off-centering. We can feel pushed off balance. We can feel like we don't know which way is up anymore. For those of you who surf or have been in the ocean, if you get pulled under by a wave, you can get so disoriented that you're not quite sure which way to swim to get to the surface. Um, to the point where surfers actually have now like inflatable devices like a ripcord they can pull that automatically will take them up to the surface of the water because you don't know all the time which way is up. And as we start to consume uh, our current events and our political events and the um, discord that occurs, particularly within the church, I don't know if those of you in this room have this reaction, but sometimes I'm like, well, that person's saying a crazy thing or persons or group because they don't know Jesus right? But then people who know Jesus say crazy things. And they're like, well, I have no excuse for you. <laughs> like now I'm just angry and I'm frustrated and I need you to stop talking about my Jesus that way because you don't know him clearly. Like you have all these, right? And then you go back and forth. Do you guys do this? Uh, okay, clearly I'm judging. All right, so I should not judge but that's so wrong. And I just, okay, but don't, don't judge. But then where's the prophetic voice? And there should be justice here. And well, clearly we're not supposed to hate poor people. Jesus loved poor people. So like you have like these things where you feel like the gospel's very clear. Love God, love your neighbor, love your enemy. And then you get to these places where you're like, but that person is terrible. But then you're like, oh, but then I'm supposed to love them. And then how do I do that? And then just pull the covers back over your head because you're at the end of it and you don't know which way is up. And then we start to even doubt all of the things that we've held true. Because the things that we feel that we know, that we know we know in the God of our belly button, like I've had this Jesus experience and I know it. 
when other people start to co-opt that experience or try to define it in terms that doesn't make sense to me or isn't my experience at all, or they try to define a gospel that is unrecognizable to me because it just doesn't sound like anything I've actually heard Jesus ever say. When we get into those places, then that world, that ground underneath us also starts to shift a little bit. And then your church is crazy, and it brings in somebody like Randall Balmer, who sits here and says, well, the religious right was actually not formed out of a deep love and care and concern for the unborn, but it was formed out of a desire to not, to not integrate the races. And so deep-seated racism was what really caused the religious right to... F- and then you're like, well, now I'm out. Like, I just... I, back to the covers over my head. So what I'd like to do today is center us a little bit back into the text and try to gain some perspective, and then try to look at what might help us survive the coming three weeks and the coming three to six months and the next 60 years. So if you don't have a Bible, I'd like you to have one. If you have one on your smart device, that's fine too. We're going to be in Isaiah 40, and it's going to start like this. Comfort Comfort, my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she's received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up and every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places a plain, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. I just want to draw your attention to the image that's not really clear behind me of the Judean wilderness. When Isaiah says this, this is the image he has in mind, and the Judean wilderness is rugged, to say the least. It's kind of a little bit unlike anything you've ever seen before. Um, There are portions where it goes straight up and then straight down, and it's very difficult to pass through. So when God says that somebody's going to be out in the wilderness, which is where I feel like I've been recently, consuming more of everything that's going wrong versus settling into trying to listen to the one voice that can bring comfort. In those places of the wilderness, where the terrain is rugged, that's where the voice comes. In the wilderness, the voice calls out and says, here, prepare the way for the Lord. Now, that can be read two different ways, because Hebrews doesn't have punctuation. Uh, Ancient Hebrew doesn't. So it can either read, in the wilderness, there's a voice calling. So go out to the wilderness to hear the voice. Or it can be, Go to the wilderness to prepare the place for the Lord. So it could be two options. And a lot of times, I don't know if you remember when we first started the book of Numbers and we talked about wilderness, the book of Numbers in Hebrew is called Bamidbar. It's in the wilderness, as they were wandering in the wilderness. Bamidbar, the root is the same as deber, which means to speak. So the wilderness is a place of speaking. And you go there to hear God speak. And maybe some of us in this room have places where we go, and when we are sitting in that spot, you can sense the presence of God. You can start to hear God speak. And for the Israelite, the wilderness is that place. That's where for 40 years, God provided them for them with manna. He provided water from the rock. He provided shelter. This is what the festival of Sukkot is recalling, that for 40 years we wandered in temporary dwelling places. And so now, even though we're in permanent dwelling places, we want you to remember that God provided for you and he was your shelter and your covering. So we go out into the wilderness to remember these things, to hear God speak. Comfort, comfort my people in the wilderness. A place is being prepared for the Lord. And this crazy thing is happening. Valleys will be raised up and rugged ground shall become level. Now, let's just take any desire to, to try to view that as a prophetic word that someday the wilderness will just become a plain, like the Midwest somewhere. 
take it just for Isaiah's understanding that the things that are deep and down and difficult and the places where you want to ascend that are hard work to get up to, God will find a way to even that out so that the wilderness is a place where we hear and we speak and we have some hope. And this is what I love. All people, it says in the Hebrew, it's very clear, all people will see it together. So those moments when I'm online and I think, okay, those people just can't be my friends anymore. Unfriend, unfriend, unfriend. That is not the gospel. All people will be able to see this together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. And a voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All people are like grass. And all their faithfulness is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because the breath of the Lord blows on them. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our Lord endures forever. And I just want to stop there for a moment. God is reminding us that the things that we are seeing, the things that we're paying attention to are going to fade away. So just like your social media stream, whether it's Twitter or Facebook or whatever it is that you're paying attention to, refreshes, and then the most recent crazy falls back down to the bottom of the page, and then more crazy enters into the top, more stress-inducing, more fear, more us versus them. And a lot of this comes from both sides of the aisle. God is saying here, that's going away. Just like it goes down off the bottom of your screen, that's all fading. That's all withering. But the word of the Lord will remain forever. It will endure forever. You don't get to refresh the Bible page and and make it go away and see something different. This stays forever. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up and do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Everyone in this room has the power to start to point us all to the good news. We all have in our hands, many of us right now in book form or electronic form, great exciting news of how God is at work in this world, how he has been at work in our individual lives, and we can go and share good news to our communities. Now, in Isaiah's day, the good news was, Jerusalem, all of the terror that has come upon you, all of that exile that is happening, and and now you'll get to return at some point, there will be good news that things are going to be set to right. But for us in this place, we can still say, there is good news, here is our God. See, the sovereign Lord comes with power. He rules with a mighty arm. See, his reward is with him and his recompense accompanies him. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. And he gently leads those that have young. God hasn't changed. He's still shepherding us. If you and I have had that experience growing up, in church or whatever moment we had that experience, we felt like God cared for us. God carried us. God loves us. Where we are sitting in this room because we've had an experience with the resurrected person of Jesus Christ. We're sitting in this room because we have encountered a God who loves and who shepherds us. In spite of the pain that we've experienced in this world, in spite of the sins of the church, in spite of the sins of our neighbors and our family members and this world, we have been tended to by the good shepherd. And God is coming with power and with a mighty arm, and he will continue to care for his people. And then Isaiah does this wonderful thing where he kind of reminds us that God is really huge. 
Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand or with the breath of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? Who can fathom the spirit of the Lord or instruct the Lord as his counselor? Whom did the Lord consult to enlighten him and who taught him the, the right way? Who was it that taught him knowledge or showed him the path of understanding? Surely the nations are like a drop in a bucket. They are regarded as dust on the scales. He weighs the islands as though they are fine dust. Lebanon is not sufficient for altar fires, nor its animals enough for burnt offerings. Before him, all the nations are as nothing. They are regarded by him as worthless and less than nothing. Our nation is only a little over 200 years old. And here, the Bible, Isaiah is talking about nations that were around for millennia and some that are still around today. And he is saying they're dust. This power, this principality that we contend with, whether it's Babylon, whether it's Lebanon, whether it's Rome, or whether it is the powers and principalities found in ISIS or whether it is found in any in Syria, in any number of other nations, or the United States. All of these are nations that are but dust to God. God is the one who set the heavens into place. God is the one who set the oceans into place. We don't have to fear. That crazy latest thing that just popped up in my news feed, that's nothing. God's the one that set the oceans into place. With whom then will you compare God? To what image will you liken him? As for an idol, a metal worker casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and fashions silver chains for it. A person too poor to present such an offering selects wood that will not rot. They look for a skilled worker to set up an idol that will not topple. You can't do anything in your ability, even through, let's be clear, policy and candidates that will in any way come close to what God can do in his righteous rule and sovereign power. Now, I saw someone recently preach, there has never been a leader, a government leader elected to office that God didn't himself ordain for that. So we don't have to be afraid because, you know, God even put Nebuchadnezzar into place and all these other things. I have a challenge with that. Because I see people doing a lot of crazy things that seem in direct disobedience to what God's commands are. And it's hard for me to believe that God's always like, yeah, that person. Let's put that person in. I think we have more responsibility than that. I think, though, whoever is there, God isn't surprised by. And it's also not a threat. If Christianity can make it through Rome, we're going to be fine with whoever's president for the next 48 years. Even if it's the person you most despise, whomever that might be, we're going to be fine. I don't know if all of you remember that eight years ago, someone was elected president and there was a lot of things going on about how we were all going to be Muslim and how we weren't going to be able to go to church anymore and how they were going to pull our, all of our guns and all of our tax benefits and we wouldn't be able to worship and you're all, we're all still here. God is not surprised by our leaders and also he's still bigger than all of this. This is not a threat to the rule and reign of God. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood since the earth was founded that God sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its people are like grasshoppers? He stretches out the heavens like a canopy and spreads them out like a tent to live in. He brings princes to naught and reduces the rulers of this world to nothing. No sooner are they planted, no sooner are they sown, no sooner do they take root in the ground that he blows on them and they wither, and a whirlwind sweeps them away like chaff. 
To whom will you compare me? Or who is my equal, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. So for all of us who are stuck in our news feed, lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Let's just lift up our eyes occasionally. Go ahead and then put them back down and, and watch the crazy. But then remember who is deeply in charge here. Lift up your eyes and look to the heavens. Who created all of these? Who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name? Because of his great power and mighty strength, not one of them is missing. Why do you complain, Jacob? Why do you say, Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord? My cause is disregarded by my God? Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall, but those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. God is bigger than this moment. God is with us, and he is bigger than this moment. We're going to be okay. Now, that's not to say that there couldn't be high cost to the individual decisions that people are making, that that things don't impact us on personal levels and, and very large levels. But ultimately, God is just a lot bigger than all of this. And it can feel, I feel like for, for a few months, I've been running with a low level of anxiety pretty constantly. I have to keep asking myself, what am I anxious about? Oh, yeah. I'm just a little bit anxious about everything. And now it's running to a little bit more medium to high. The more crazy things get. But God is bigger than this moment. And things change very quickly. I ran into Bernie Sanders last night in a hotel in Seattle. And we're sitting there and checking in. It's like 11 o'clock at night. And, you know, just random. Like, he's by himself with one other guy. And he just walks in. And he's, I'm like, dude, that's, that's like Bernie Sanders. I'm looking at Phoebe. Kevin's far away. I'm like, Phoebe, that's, I think that's, right? <laughs> she doesn't know Bernie Sanders. <laughs> like, that's Bernie Sanders. Like, so we just look over and hi, thank you. Right? Whatever you think about him, he's trying. He's trying to have a conversation. And... The thing that shocked me in that moment was like, he doesn't have any Secret Service detail anymore. He's out, right? So it's just him and a guy. Whereas not that long ago, you guys saw him, and he had a lot more people around him. His life changed very quickly, and then it changed very quickly back. (laughs) These things, God is just bigger than all of these little moments in between, and they can feel earth-shaking and big in the moment. But ultimately, God's just bigger than all of this. So what do we do when we start to feel a little bit stressed or we start to feel triggered or angry or frustrated in all of these things? So for me, last week, the comments, um, all of this has been angering and triggering for me. Um, When we talk about this ethnic group is all this or immigrants are all this or... um, you know, Muslims are all this. All of these things are angering for me. When we start talking about issues of um, racial injustice within our justice system, all of these things are triggering and angering for me. Um, and, and many of them reside deeply personally. Um, I have people in my home that are immediately impacted by the way in which um, these laws are managed in our country. We've had police in our home holding our daughter at gunpoint. Why? Because she's black and because two of her black friends at three o'clock in the afternoon were outside of our gate and somebody said they looked suspicious. So they broke into my home, jumped over locked gates and pulled guns on my daughter in my home at three in the afternoon while she was napping. So I get triggered on this stuff. And I got triggered before that event happened It's just more now. So last week, I was so angry, and I was triggered all week. And I was like, ugh! 
And I was trying to figure out why is this happening? Why, why is my reaction now so hot? Why am I so angry about this? It's like, oh, 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 oh. The first time I ever preached in a church, ever got to preach in a pulpit, like I'd been teaching the kids for a long time. I was in a Lutheran church, and so I wore clerical garbs. I was in pastor robe. I looked really official. I preached my message from the front, and then we process out. And so we processed out, and we stand there in the narthex, fancy word for church lobby, and we greet people. And this is just, you know, how you do it. Hi, how are you? As they come out, hi. And they, they say kind things, right? Like, good sermon. You're 22. What do you know? Right? No, just here. So preaching that first message. And I'm just shaking hands and smiling and saying hi. And then an older gentleman with a cane who'd been around the church for a long time, uh, he came up to me and I extended my hand and he didn't take my hand. Instead, he, and I am not joking, deliberately fell into me and grabbed me. In church, on a Sunday, after a service, with everybody around. And I sat there and was like, what is, is this happening? And then you, you can't believe that it's happening. And then you're not sure because, you know, maybe, maybe this person did just fall and somehow grab on. How, cause you, cause you're not expecting such a thing. And women those of us in the room, we manage this all the time. We manage these fears and concerns. We walk at night from the gym to our car with keys sticking out. We are concerned about our safety and security. So when I hear somebody speak this way about women, I get triggered. But it took me a while to figure out what it was. I'm like, oh, I've felt this way at work for many years in, in a church. Where I've had people on a Sunday walk up to me and ask me, who did you sleep with to get this pastor job? I put children on time out. So I was like, you have two options. You can either go into church or I can call security. I'll go into church. I think that's a good idea. So I get triggered and I get angry and I get frustrated and I'm trying to figure out and I have to do all this examining to figure out why is that happening? And then even when I post that and, and get frustrated about it. somebody writes back and says, well, I hope you learned self-defense. I'm like, what does that have to do with it? You think I'm going to hurt somebody in the line of greeting with my associate pastor standing next to me the first time I've ever preached that this is the time I'm going to pull out a karate move? Are you kidding me? First of all, he's old, right? There's a problem. So in the middle of those moments, here's what I found works. We have to invite Jesus into that distress. We have to sit in that moment and say, okay, I'm triggered. I'm angry and I'm frustrated and I feel righteous indignation. And now I need to post 16 things and I need to tell 22 people and I need to convince 16 other people. And I start, need to start disinviting people to Thanksgiving immediately, right? Like, so you have these moments. We need to be conveniently out of town for all holidays coming up for the coming year. So you figure out like, how do I avoid all of this stuff? And you take a deep breath and you say, Jesus, I'm mad. I'm triggered. I'm angry. I'm frustrated. And I need you to be with this. Because I can't even manage it right now. Maybe if we were at a one or two or a four or five, I could manage it. But it's at a 10. And a 10 is not healthy. 10 is ugly. 10 is embarrassing. 10 means people are starting to unfriend me. So I need to get back down to management in that moment. And here's, you're going to think this was crazy, but this is what has worked for me in years of spiritual direction. I just say to Jesus, Jesus, anger is here. Hurt and pain is here. And it's wanting my attention. It's like at a 10 and I can't manage it right now. So please, Jesus, come and sit with this. And I just invite Jesus to come and sit with my anger. Because he can take that. Again, back to the huge, long arc of history. God is much bigger than this moment, and he's not surprised by our sin. And he can come and sit with that. And he's not angry with me that I feel angry. He can handle it. Jesus can handle all of that. So the first thing we have to do when we start to feel angry or triggered or stressed or frustrated is invite Jesus into that moment. And don't make it pretty. 
He doesn't need you to make it pretty. He already knows. Don't say one of those prayers like, I'm feeling really angry right now, Lord, but then just, you know, um, I know, but I know I'm supposed to love that person, so just help me love that person. That's great. You can get there eventually, but you can start with first, I'm just really angry, and I need you to be with me while I'm angry. There are about 70 psalms of lament. Grab one. Read one. Many want the crushing of enemies. God is not surprised by our bit of anger. Most likely, most of us in this room are not asking to crush and dash our enemies' children's heads against rocks. Okay? So you're already doing better than many of the psalmists. If you have just avoided asking for your enemies' heads to be crushed into rocks. The next thing you're going to do is in that moment, after you're feeling triggered, you're inviting Jesus in that moment of distress, you're going to practice and this is actual practice, practice makes perfect, compassion towards yourself and others. So you're not going to make yourself feel bad that you're not being super spiritual. You're not going to be in that moment saying, I should be doing this, I should be doing that. Okay, no, 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 just be compassionate. Just allow Jesus to love you in that moment and then start to suggest in your mind when you're getting there, how Jesus help me now have compassion for others. What would cause somebody to do that? How broken must they be? How deeply wounded must they be? How hard must their life be that after a church service, that's the way they're going to respond? There's something deeply broken and deeply lonely. Help me have compassion for that. Help me try to see humanity in this action. Help me try to practice some love and some care. Now, that doesn't mean that we excuse the behavior. It doesn't mean that we don't address and try to fix behavior that is wrong. But it does mean that we don't have to immediately otherize the person to say, those people over there on this side of the political aisle or this side of the political aisle are crazy. We're not going to do that. We are going to recognize that all people, everyone, are invited to the table. Jesus invites everyone to this table. Everyone, exactly as we are. And so we start to practice that invitation and compassion towards ourselves and towards others. And then I recommend you call a friend. That you have a friend on a lifeline that knows you well enough, that you know that they know you well enough, they're not going to be surprised by your anger or your rant, that they can just say what they need to say. You can say what you need to say in that moment. And they're not going to go, oh boy, that person's just, I mean, I don't even know if they're a Christian anymore, right? You don't want the friend that every single time anything bad happens, they just turn right to like the silver lining. You want the friend that can sit there and go, yep, it's rainy and it's stormy and it stinks. You just want that friend. Because that friend who loves Jesus can give you some peace in that moment. And you just need to have that one friend that can come alongside and say, okay, I get it. I get you. Get it out. Vent. It's kind of like the friend that, you know, or the parent that holds the hair back and holds the bag and you just up chuck, right? Just get it out. You can call a pastor. Just get it out. And then have that time to point both you and the other person back to Jesus. And lastly, I want to remind us that we have in Christianity a theology of redemptive suffering. And this is a wonderful term that a friend of ours, Kurt Rhodes, who's going to be coming and talking to us again in November, um, who's in charge of Questscope and has been working with the refugee crisis. He was talking, he wrote an article about how ISIS, ISIL, Dagesh, has a theology of redemptive violence. That until we deal with the theology, we're in trouble. That they believe that through violence, that there's redemption. That, that things can be better or the world can be redeemed in their way, in their world. But it's through violence. And he's suggesting that the only way to counter that is through a theology of redemptive suffering. And he's working with people who have suffered the unspeakable, right? They're in the refugee camps around the world and... Um, particularly in Zatari and Jordan, and he's trying to talk to them about a theology of redemptive suffering. Well, what's the truth about this? For Christians, this is the core of our theology. We believe in a God that suffered and died on the cross to save us from our sins. 
We believe in a God that in the crucifixion itself, in the suffering of Jesus, we are redeemed. And so in all of this, our theology doesn't come from might. It doesn't come from power. It doesn't come from great political rhetoric. It doesn't come from sitting there and having the right candidate win whatever right correct race it's going to be at whatever time and having the right people in the right place. That has nothing to do with our theology. Our theology comes from a person, Jesus himself, who lays down his life. And in the laying down of one's life, in that laying down, we find redemptive. We find redemption. We find hope. Sarah Miles has written a a story of, she's a journalist and an author, who's written a story of her conversion into Christianity, which surprised her. And she talked about it, she speaks about it like this in her book, Take This Bread. The Christianity that called to me through the stories I read in the Bible scattered the proud, rebuked the powerful. It was a religion in which divinity was revealed by scars on flesh. It was an upside-down world in which treasure, as the prophet said, was found in darkness, in which the hungry were filled with good things and the rich sent out empty, in which new life was manifested through a humiliated, hungry woman and an empty, tortured man. Sarah, she's talking about a Christianity that, that resonates and understands suffering. A lot of times when I start to hear what is happening in our current cultural dialogue, we're talking about oftentimes some sort of theology of power, of trying to get the right people in the right place at the right time, or or making sure that the laws are all leaning in our particular way, the way that one group of us decides that we want them versus another, rather than understanding that our God himself doesn't come forcing everybody to do everything. Instead, Jesus comes and lays down his life on the cross. So let's look uh, just briefly at John chapter 6. And I don't have it on the screen. I'm just going to read it to you, um, or you can pick it up with me as well. Jesus is in Capernaum. He's in a synagogue, and he's been teaching. He's just fed a whole bunch of hungry people with bread. And um, everyone's saying, surely this is the prophet. Let's take him king and let's make him king by force. And then beginning in verse 48, right before this, by the way, Jesus is saying things like, I am the bread of life, and whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. And he continues on. And then as he's talking, they're trying to understand what he's saying. He says that I am the bread of life portion. Your ancestors ate the man in the wilderness and yet they died. But here's the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. And then, and by the way here, you can neither translate this as Judeans or Jews. Um, then the Judeans began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise them up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. And on hearing it, many of his disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I've spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. For there are some of you who do not believe, for Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and which would betray him. And he went on to say, this is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. Do you do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. 
Isn't this a hard teaching? This is my flesh. This is my blood. If you don't partake of this, you won't live. I have one of my girlfriends, we were sitting on, on the uh, shore of the Sea of Galilee, and she was reading this passage. We were both just doing some Bible reading, and she finished this passage, and she said, I just want to announce I would have been out. <laughs> She's like, I'm out. Right at the point you're talking about eating, she's also a very picky eater. But she was like, at that point, she's like, I'm out. Like, I'm, I'm done. I can't. This is a hard teaching. I'm leaving. Now, let, let's be clear. Nobody ever actually ate the flesh of Jesus or drank his blood. Okay? That's not what Jesus is talking about, actually a cannibalistic behavior here. He's explaining as we've often all used this, hey, no one comes to the Father but through him, and he's the bread of life. We like these other verses, but we hardly ever talk about this verse in the middle. He's explaining that it is his very suffering, it is the very laying down of his life, it is the very suffering through which redemption and life comes. It is his life on the cross, his blood shed on the cross, his body there. That is where we partake of his offering. And it is in that moment that we find communion with Christ and with others. And it is in that moment that we continue to say, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. I I think when I come to to, um, all of these different scenarios in our nation and in our world, and all of just the regular amount of self-doubt that we all have and big God doubt that we have, I sit there and I think, well, Hey, maybe this is crazy. Maybe we just made this whole thing up. Maybe this, this Jesus thing isn't true. And if you haven't had any of those thoughts, great. Uh, I'm letting you know I'm a pastor and, and I've had those thoughts. And in fact, I try to have them. Because I want to know if what I believe is real. I want to know if I really, really believe this. And so I ask it. And I always come back to this point. Lord, to whom shall I go? And the reason why is because I don't actually see any hope in the world except for redemptive suffering. I don't see any hope in the world except for a God that lays down his life for us, that redeems us by his shed blood, that forgives us of our sins because I am so triggered and angry and frustrated and that person and this person and these whole people over here and how can you say these things? And I need a savior and I need this bread and I need this cup. I only see hope if we live a life of self-sacrifice. I only see hope if we follow in Jesus's footsteps and we say, greater is no love than this, than he who lays down his life for his friends. This is the Christianity I believe in. This is the Jesus that I follow. The one that says the greatest commandment is to love God with everything and love your neighbor as yourself and, yes, even your enemy. This past week, I was teaching with Rabbi Ari for uh, Yom Kippur. Uh, For Yom Kippur, you fast all day, the Day of Atonement. And so he invited me to come and do a class with him in the afternoon that kind of makes the day go faster for everybody. And we're sitting there and we're talking about this passage of uh, Perkei Avot, uh, which is a blessing from the rabbis. It's sort of like, may you be covered in the dust of your rabbi, of the wise ones, the sages, and drink in their words as though you're very thirsty. And I was describing that for me, this passage of Talmud um, in Perkei Avot, this rabbinic teaching caused me to start to live my life differently with Jesus. It caused me to recognize that I needed to be imitating Christ. I didn't just have to check a box like, I believe, I believe, I believe, but I actually had to do the things that Jesus did. And as we're talking about this, I said, yeah, so, and I'm speaking to a group of Jews, and I said, so the Shema, the number one commandment, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, love the Lord your God with everything, and love your neighbor yourself, has become deeply important to me. Because Jesus said it was the number one commandment. So I'm trying to do that. I'm trying to figure out how do I love God with everything? How do you do this? And then, and I said, and you know what? Jesus then added this really difficult teaching for me. He said, and love your enemy. And the whole crowd went, oh, oh. I was like, yeah, I know, right? That as a Christian, if I want to live this rabbi-discipleship relationship, which is much more familiar in the Jewish community and, and understood than it is in our community, um, our Christian community at large, that, that our faith is not just an ascension of belief, but it's actually 
that we too are invited to, as Jesus says, pick up our cross daily and follow him. We're invited into the redemptive suffering. And I don't know where else to go but back to him in all of that. So my prayer is that the next time I'm figuring, feeling triggered and angry and frustrated, which will probably be about, you know, two hours from now in this current news cycle, that instead I will lay down my life, that I'm not going to try to have 16 more arguments better than somebody else, that I'm not going to try to post 22 more things. Now, just give me 24 hours, probably like four things tomorrow. But that I'm going to try to get centered again, to invite Jesus into the midst of that chaos, to ask for all of the compassion that I need in that moment for myself and for others, and then to get back to the Jesus story that I know. And the Jesus story I know is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. This Jesus story I know is one of redemptive suffering, where we are all invited to the table to partake of the body and blood of Christ. Because it is in that moment and in those things that we see our own redemption, that we have our own hope. And this is the only story that I see out there that gives me any hope. It's the only one that I see changing people, that I see turning the world back, is when somebody goes up to another and says, I will lay down my life for you. I will even love you when you are my enemy. And there's redemption there. There's hope there. Yesterday at the um, reception for Pastor Mark and Stacy, as they got married, we, we had communion. And we did communion by intincture with some pita bread and, and dipping into the, the juice. And afterwards, Phoebe had communion with us, and she came running up to me, and she said, I'm hungry for more of that bread. I was like, amen. I'm hungry for more of that bread, too. Jesus, I need this. I need your love in this world. I need that to be the thing that I'm refreshing all day. I need your words to be the ones that bring me everlasting life. I need your words to be the ones to remind me that you set the oceans into the place, that you put the starry tent out into the sky. And through all of that, there is comfort. Comfort, my people. There will be comfort. So right now, we'd like to invite all of you up to the table For communion, when you're ready, we're going to play a song, a worship song by a a worship band called The Brilliance. And the refrain there over and over again is, I want to see, I want to see the love. And this is what brings hope in our world. The love of Jesus poured out for each one of us. As you feel led, please come forward and partake. And if you would like to serve one another, you can do so as well. Um, Everyone is welcome at this table. The body of Christ given for you. The blood of Christ shed for you. And we do this. Every day go to war again we assume we know so much more than them before we hear what they have to say the headline breaks and we start to hate again or calling them names again we give our peace away they see it cause I wanna see it I hope we believe it I wanna see I wanna see the love all around you it's all around I want to know, I want to know that love is all around.
by day Hope fades away again We know that there is pain within We cannot medicate Learn to feel joining us at the table and I pray that this week you see the love again It's all around.